Well, this morning, is, as you can see, we're going to return to the Gospel of Matthew after a little hiatus. We will return for one week, and then we'll leave it until January. So next week, we'll have our Thanksgiving service. There'll be chances for you to give testimony and give thanks to God. And you might want to be praying about that this week to see if God wants you to share a testimony of Thanksgiving next week. Um, and then we'll do some Advent uh, messages around the incarnation throughout December and return to Matthew in, in January. But today we'll be in, in Matthew chapter 22 if you'd like to open up your Bible there. We're back today to finish a trilogy of sorts. Uh, last time we taught in Matthew, Jeff taught, and he taught the first two of three stories that Jesus was um, telling amidst really intense opposition from the religious leaders of his day during the last week of his life. So we are in the last week of Jesus' life in the midst of very intense opposition. And these three stories that Jesus told were targeted at the religious leaders who opposed him. Essentially, Jesus is three times poking his finger into the chest of his opposition, of the hypocritical leadership of the religious leaders of his day, priests, scribes, Pharisees. He is taking them all on. And we are, at this point, just two, at most three days from the cross. Now, by way of review, um, the first two stories you can find in the back end of Matthew 21, if you want to open your Bibles there, and just remember with me what those stories were about. In, in verse 28 of chapter 21, we, we heard the, the parable of the two sons. One son said he would obey his father and then did not. Another son said he would not obey his father, but on further reflection... He chose to go and honor his father and obey him. Um, now, Matt Woodley says that when Jesus asks his followers down in uh, verse 31 of chapter 21, which of the two did the will of his father, everybody gets the right answer, right? The one who obeyed. So far, he says, so good. He says, it's a simple story suitable for children. No surprises, nothing offensive, but then Jesus adds a shocking twist. He says, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom before you. Um, the tax collectors and the prostitutes had believed John the Baptist's message, while the religious leaders ignored John's invitation to repent. This is the first poke in the chest that Jesus does to the religious leaders. Now, the second story follows, starting in verse 33 uh, to the end of the chapter. It involves a landowner who rents out a carefully cultivated vineyard to tenants. And when it's time to collect his share of the harvest, he sends servants to do that for him. They are beaten and even killed by the tenants. In an act of unspeakable mercy and patience, the landlord does not retaliate. Instead, he sends his son to do what he had sent the servants to do. And his son, tragically, is treated similarly. 
he is beaten, and he is killed. Um, At this point in the second story, Jesus turns to the religious leaders that he's talking to, and he asks them this question. When the, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And this is what they answer, the religious leaders answer. They say, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyards to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus responds this way. He cites scripture and he says, therefore I tell you, he's talking to the leaders the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone, is referring to himself, will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. It's a second poke in the leader's chest, and they knew it. It says, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So that's the first two stories in the trilogy. This is where we pick up the story this morning in chapter 22. It's a third poke in the chest of the religious leaders. And it starts this way in verse 1 of chapter 22. Again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but but they would not come. Now, at this point in my life, I am somewhat familiar with wedding feasts, okay? Threw a big one a couple years ago, threw another one last summer, got another one coming up in March, okay? Um, You... If you get a chance to go to a wedding feast, you should go. There is no more joyous celebration of the goodness of God that I know of than a wedding feast. The food is great. Um, Good friends are there. Great stories are told. Prayers and wishes of blessing are given. It's fantastic. It's it's the the best party that I know of in celebrating the goodness and mercy of God. Now, in Jesus' story, he ups the ante. This is not just any wedding feast, not just any wedding party. It's thrown by the king for his son. At this point, uh, point of reference, think William and Kate, okay? That's what we're talking about. This is where they had their reception, William and Prince William and uh, Kate Middleton did. Just the cakes at their reception cost 80 grand. Okay? Somebody figured out that it was about $134 a slice. Okay? The, uh, the reception that took place here, $600,000. Just the reception. If you get invited to a wedding feast by a king, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. You don't want to miss the feast. And what I, what I want to make sure you don't miss is Jesus says, that's what the kingdom is like, okay? It's a wedding feast put on by a king. 
It's the most joyous of celebrations in the presence of the Lord himself. Uh, Tony Campolo titled one of his books, uh, The Kingdom of God is a Party. Uh, and I think he was on to something there. That's what, that's what Jesus is saying the kingdom is like. Now, every once in a while, you'll run into somebody, you'll have a conversation with somebody on the outside of the kingdom looking in, and they say things like this. So, um, if church is really boring and it lasts only two hours, I can't imagine doing that 24-7 for all eternity. Okay? Tell them that's not what Jesus says, one, church should be like, but two, that's not the kingdom. The kingdom, Jesus said, it's going to be the best party ever, okay. like a king throwing a party for his son's wedding. Now, in Jesus' day especially, a personal invitation from the king was not optional. Okay. It was not something that you declined. That would shame the king, especially on an occasion like the wedding of his son. But um, who would want to do that? You know? If you had a chance to go to that wedding, okay, who would want to just say, nah, I got, I got better things I got better things to do. Uh, if I could quote that great philosopher turned kidnapper, Vizzini, it would be inconceivable <laughs> that you would decline an offer to a wedding like this. That's inconceivable. But if you look at the back end of, of uh, verse 3, it says they would not come. They were, one, one writer said they were stubbornly obstinate in their refusal to come. What were they thinking? Refuse the king's invitation to a party? That, that is inconceivable. And in light of what we just discussed about this being kind of a invitation slash command from the king. The question is now, how's the king gonna respond to this public shaming that they have done to him? Next verse. Again, the king sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Okay. So what's the king do to this offense, this slight? He sends more servants with enticing incentives. They show them the menu. Okay. Uh, Matt Woodley suggests it might have read something like this. Entree number one includes a roast rib of oxen smothered with shiitake mushrooms, while entree number two includes filet of fatted calf covered with pomegranate chutney. You know? Seriously, these two items, oxen and a fatted calf, those were for the most special guests. It was an honor to receive this invitation. What's the king do? When they decline his first invitation, he sends a second one. What does he do when he's rejected and shamed? He invites again. He gives them a second chance. We would say, this is inconceivable. Okay. 
Jesus says, don't forget what Jesus is talking about. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's like a king who gives second, wholly undeserved chances. And I suppose that could raise the question, what kind of coffee does God like? I knew you were thinking that. Let me explain. Uh, there's a guy named Pete Leonard. He was a businessman involved in a local software company. And uh, as a hobby, he started roasting coffee out of his garage. At about the same time, coincidentally, uh, Leonard watched as a family member fruitlessly searched for work after serving time in prison. Uh, Leonard said he'd always get interviews, but the instant he had to check the box, I'm a convicted felon, that was the end of the story. Leonard also realized that his relative's story was typical of a much larger problem. Many ex-convicts can't find work, which drives them back into either unemployment or, or crime. So over breakfast one morning, Leonard and two close friends took a napkin, sketched out an idea of starting a business that would hire ex-offenders. But Leonard was also committed to making excellent coffee. He says, if the coffee's bad, you're not going to buy it again. So Leonard and his friends started Second Chance Coffee, which markets under the brand, uh, I Have a Bean. And Leonard and his wife, Debbie, invested thousands of dollars to launch the business. He eventually left his job to pursue it full-time. And today, Second Chance Coffee makes quality coffee while hiring mostly ex-cons. For a mom or dad coming out of prison, that means being able to be a provider and pulling the family out of the cycle is poverty. What kind of coffee does God like? Second chance coffee. God is a God who offers the undeserving a second invitation. This is inconceivable. But perhaps more inconceivable is what, what happens uh, next in verse 5. Second invitation comes, enticing menu is read, but they paid no attention and went off. One to his farm, another to his business. Um, they, they get an invitation, a second one, with the menu from the king to come to the wedding party, and they pay no attention. It's like they just get it, they read it, they toss it in the trash. And then they just go off to work like normal. What were they thinking? Okay. Uh, maybe, maybe they were just too busy. Maybe they just had too much work to do to take time to honor the king. It's interesting. They weren't doing drugs. They weren't listening to country-western music or doing anything destructive. They just went to work. Good things. One to the farm, another to his business. Maybe, maybe they went to their busyness. It could, be, it could entirely be that they were too busy for God, which may be explained that they had too much fast food. Let me explain that to you. That's not a total non sequitur. Um, in 1960, McDonald's had 200 restaurants. Okay? By 2012, they had 31,000 
restaurants. Um, more than a quarter million fast food restaurants are in America today, and on any given day, one in four Americans will eat at least one meal at a fast food restaurant. One out of four. There's a guy named Sanford DeVoe. He's a researcher at the University of Toronto, and he wanted to explore if fast food culture was changing our lives in ways beyond just our eating habits. So DeVoe and another colleague conducted a series of experiments in which researchers subliminally flashed corporate logos for McDonald's, KFC, Taco Bell, Burger King, Subway, and Wendy's. Some of you are salivating already. Okay. Now there was a control group that saw other images but no fast food logos. And when the two groups were asked to do an unrelated task, okay, the fast food group tried to complete the task much faster. Okay. Another, uh, another group um, who had seen fast food images, that made students less able to sit back and enjoy music. A third experiment found that people exposed to fast food logos showed a greater reluctance for saving, saving money. Based on those experiments, DeVoe concluded that fast food helps us save time, but just thinking, even thinking subconsciously about fast food restaurants makes us live with more speed and less patience. He said fast food culture doesn't just change the way we eat, but it can also fundamentally alter the way we experience our time. Are you too busy? to accept an invitation from your great king to enjoy his company. See, the invitation to kingdom is first and foremost an, an invitation to the king. Are there invitations from your king littering your desk laying around unopened because you are simply too busy. The invitation came and you went about your business. See, these people did that in Jesus' story. They just ignored the invitation to the king's wedding feast in the honor of his son so they could go to work. Inconceivable. Or at least it should be. But believe it or not, it gets worse. <clears throat> they paid no attention. They went off, one to his farm and one to his business, while the rest actually seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Now this, honestly to me, really is inconceivable. We have murder over a wedding invitation. Get wedding invitation, kill the messenger. What's happening here? As the king's, you know, the, the king's generosity, his patience exceed all reasonable expectations, so does rejection at a level that can, commits murder. This really is inconceivable. Um, at least it seems that way if we don't remember the setting in which Jesus is telling his stories. It is 
likely Tuesday of Jesus' Passion Week. Some scholars say even Wednesday. We are two, three days from the cross. See, these, reader, these leaders are trying to arrest him. We've already seen it, but they're afraid of the crowd. And in just two or three days, they're going to succeed in the garden late at night. They're going to arrest Jesus. And they are going to not only arrest him, but they are going to try him and convict him and nail him to a tree as a common criminal. See, there is no hyperbole in Jesus' trilogy of stories. They really are about to kill the Son. And as they have killed the prophets before him and killed John the Baptist, they will kill this messenger of God too, who bears the invitation to come to the kingdom that is the party in honor of the Son. See, these are the most pointed of parables when you think about the context, Jesus is poking the leaders in the chest one more time. And he continues his story. And he says, in response to this, the second rejection, the king was angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. The king's patience has been exhausted. And really, that would come as no surprise in Jesus' story. Murder the king's messenger, what would you expect? It is a treasonous act to murder the king's messengers. And that now brings his just judgment at last upon them. And if we step out of the parable and think about what Jesus is saying here, there can be no doubt that Jesus is saying and believed that this is what waits for people who reject me. Okay? And Matthew has been um, recording this theme time and time again. Back in chapter 7, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. In chapter 10, he says, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. When we pick up Matthew again and we get to chapter 25 next year, he's going to say, Jesus, he's going to say, He will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And just a couple verses later, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Jesus believed in, taught repeatedly with explicit words of a judgment of the severest kind for those who reject him, an eternal kind of judgment. And this is the plainest, most honest assessment I can make of Jesus' teaching on these matters. He believed in the severest of judgments that would come to those who would repeatedly reject his invitations to the kingdom. Now, in preparing for this message, I ran across uh, a sermon that had been delivered up in Washington, D.C. at our nation's cathedral, the National Cathedral. And it was on this passage, and I read it with interest. And um, 
That particular pastor a number of years ago explained these verses of judgment this way. He says, in our, in our gospel today, there's a lot of Middle Eastern exaggeration okay, about the bloody consequences of refusing the party invitation. But the point is the tragedy of it all. To miss out on the sheer delight of knowing God's love for us is a terrible loss. To which I would say, yes, it is terrible to miss out on the love of God, described as a party here. But Jesus says it's more than that. It is more terrible to miss the love of God and bear His wrath. To miss the party and, in Jesus' words, to be destroyed and have your city burned to the ground. The teaching of Jesus is great invitation and great warning. What happens next is truly nothing less than inconceivable. Okay? Watch what happens next. We turn to our story. The king says to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. So this king, having been rejected not once but twice, invites again. And this time, it's to anybody that will accept it, both Good and bad, it says. It's inconceivable, this kind of generosity. Jesus tells a similar story that Luke records in his gospel. And there Jesus says particularly that the invitation goes to the poor and to the crippled and to the blind and to the lame, to outcasts and loners, to people nobody invited, ever invited to their parties. As James Joyce put it, it's like, here comes everybody, okay? They're all coming to the party. I love, I love the way Philip Yancey uh, connects it. He tells a story um, the Boston Globe published a number of years ago about an unusual wedding banquet. A couple had gone to the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston to plan their wedding, and every detail they selected, they were determined to have the very best. Food, china, flowers, Music, the whole enchilada. And they both had really expensive taste, and the bill showed it. Many thousands of dollars. And half of it was due on the spot as a down payment. Everything, he says, was moving along smoothly until the day the wedding invitations were to go in the mail, and then the groom announced that he couldn't go through with it. He just wasn't sure. Now the hurt and angry bride-to-be had to go back to the Hyatt to cancel the banquet, only to learn that there was no way to get, get back the thousands of dollars that were the down payment. The contract was binding. There were only two options, forfeit the down payment or go ahead with the party. So the bride was, of course, outraged at this, but the more she thought about it, the clearer she was that she would go ahead with the party, and now, though, it wouldn't be a wedding banquet, but instead it would just be a great big blowout. As a matter of fact, 10 years before, this woman had been living in a homeless shelter. 
but she had managed to get back on her feet over time and taken a good job and eventually made a lot of money. And now she had the idea of throwing a big party for her old friends, the down and outs, the homeless of Boston. And so in June, this was about 20 years ago, 1990, the Hyatt Hotel had a party the likes of which no one had ever quite seen. The, jailed, or the jilted bride, rather, changed the menu to boneless chicken in honor of the groom. And, and she sent invitations to homeless shelters and rescue missions in the city. So that summer evening, Yancey writes, people accustomed to finding their meals in the trash bins of the city made their way through the grand lobby of the Hyatt to a meal of chicken cordon bleu. Black-tied waiters served hors d'oeuvres to people with rags wrapped around them as clothes. Many had their bags of worldly goods with them, reminders of the hard life they were living. But for this night, they were treated like kings and queens, sipping champagne, eating chocolate wedding cake, dancing into the night. Now, do you know what that story means? Do you, do you get what the story means, Jesus' story? It means you and me, we get invited. Okay. No matter what you've done, no matter how dark your secrets, this morning, you get invited to the kingdom of heaven which is the party to end all parties. Bigger than that even. It means the whole world gets invited. It moves in this story from Israel primarily to the nations. Everybody gets invited to the party. Good, bad, Jew, Gentile. Dale Bruner says, the biblical God seeks a rebellious people. This is the theme of the scriptures ever since the Lord called our first parents, Adam and Eve, who had just eaten the forbidden fruit and were hiding from the face of the Lord. And the Lord said with great patience, where are you? God first seeks out, he says, not wipes out those who spite God's gift. This is a very, very generous, patient God who really must love a party. He's desperate to have a party. And that's the other question. What does this tell us about the occasion? What does it tell us about the one who's being honored by the feast? It's not about the king primarily. It's about his son. The son, the king thinks, deserves to have a banquet hall full at his wedding. The father wouldn't have it any other way. It's interesting, verse 8 says something very interesting. He says that he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. What does it mean to be unworthy of the wedding feast? 
or, or, or to be worthy of the wedding feast for that matter. One thing is very clear. It's not about conduct, okay? Because the good and the bad were invited and filled the banquet hall. It is primarily about accepting the invitation. But maybe what happens next will help us understand even more. Because when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. Um, we're going to find out in the next uh, couple of verses. King said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. So this guy gets kicked out of the wedding feast because he's not wearing the right clothes. Really? He gets kicked out of the wedding feast because he's not wearing the right clothes? That's exactly what Jesus says. There is a very strict dress code at this party. Okay? You show up without a coat and tie, they are throwing you out. What are the clothes that gets you permission from the king to enjoy the party? I think Jesus points this out in another teaching of his in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says, you'll recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He goes on and says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we did, not pro- did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus in Matthew 7 indicates that um, the wedding clothes are doing the will of the Father. And Alan Ross explains that well. He says, we have to say that the proper attire would correspond to all that Jesus said was required for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. True repentance for sin and faith in Christ and then a commitment to love and obey the Lord as evidence of saving faith. In Jesus' day, he says, many people certainly want to enter the kingdom, but when Jesus started telling them to come to him and take his yoke upon them and learn of him, they went away. And in the day of judgment, many will claim to have done good deeds, but Jesus will turn them away because they will not have dealt properly with the basic issue of salvation. They will not be prepared properly and spiritually to be received by the king at the wedding of the son. And so this man is rendered speechless by Jesus' question. He knows he has, he has no answer. He has no defense. And the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, excuse me, and cast him. Something bad just happened to my slides. I apologize that those are going to be impossible for you to read. It says, 
Verse 13 and 14, the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Again, this is the imagery of the severest of judgments, of exclusion from the joyful celebration that is the kingdom of heaven. It's the greatest of sorrows and misery. And again, this is not mere Middle Eastern exaggeration. Any more than the king's generosity and love is Middle Eastern exaggeration. Jesus is teaching us both. We have in this story the most enticing of invitations and the severest of warnings. And the story is really, in a microcosm, the story of the whole Bible, of, of a king whose people rebel, and he lovingly pursues them over and over again, and they reject his pursuits, they reject his messengers, they reject the prophets of the Old Testament, and even kill them at points. They reject John the Baptist and kill him, and in three days from the telling of the story, they will reject the son and kill him too. To reject such a demonstration of love is to stand square in the path of God's judgment, Jesus says. We need to heed this warning. As one writer put it, warning is loving. And Jesus is very clear. Have you heeded His warning? Have you accepted and welcomed the invitation on His terms with faith in Christ and His work on your behalf, repenting of your sin and your selfishness and now committing to trust and follow Christ? Clearly, Jesus says it's the prerogative of the king to determine who is allowed to the feast. He does the choosing. This message today is yet another bearing of the invitation of the party that is the kingdom of God. Will you accept the invitation today? Some of you have, have come with friends or family. You're on the outside looking in. You've been asking questions. You've been showing up to places like this from time to time. Will you today accept the invitation and become a believer and a follower in Jesus Christ? That's the first response. But it's also an invitation to live life with the King now. To welcome His invitation to draw near. His almost daily invitation to us to draw near. And this morning, some of you are, are made aware by the Spirit of God that you are too busy for that. Something else matters more. One writer said that Legitimate occupation becomes sinister when it becomes preoccupation. Some of you are wholly preoccupied with your work. It is for you robbing you of a response to the invitation from your king. So, as we close, the worship team comes to lead us. We want to have a time of response. And our leaders, there will be some of our women's leaders and our, our pastors and elders available in the front rows. If you want someone to pray with you... Um, We'd be willing to do that. And I encourage you to use this time to come forward and bow low before your king and repent and accept his invitation to the kingdom.
Let's bow in prayer and then we'll close in worship.